Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I am J.P. Hornstra of the Southern California News Group, and spring training has begun. David Peralta, Alex Reyes, and Jimmy Nelson all have lockers in the Dodgers clubhouse. And Fernando Valenzuela is having his number retired by the Dodgers this summer. Did you ever think it would happen? Fernando didn't. Neither did I. Haven't talked about that since FanFest, since the last time I recorded, but I want to start with the last week of transactions because it was actually a busy one. Turns out the offseason was not over when spring training camp opened, in spite of all the early activity we saw in November and December. Now, David Peralta, Alex Reyes, and Jimmy Nelson were not among the top 50 free agents listed on MLBTradeRumors.com this winter. I started my research for this episode by looking up what each of them was predicted to sign for this offseason. But then I quickly realized that none of them got predictions. That's because none of them were even honorable mentions, let alone among the top 50 predictions for MLBTradeRumors.com. So suffice it to say, I think they all signed under slide. The Dodgers' offseason mandate must have been to sign players to one-year contracts only. Of the three guys signed this week, only Alex Reyes has a team option for 2024. Noah Syndergaard got a one-year deal. J.D. Martinez got a one-year deal. Shelby Miller got a one-year deal. And I have to wonder whether Justin Turner, Justin Verlander, and some other big-name free agents not named Justin wouldn't be Dodgers right now if they were willing to sign one-year deals too. A one-year deal is a low-risk move, especially so in the cases of Peralta, Reyes, and Nelson, who combined are guaranteed less than $9 million. Now, all three have incentives that could boost their take-home pay. We'll get into that. Reyes can get up to $1 million in bonuses this year if he makes 30 appearances. That sounds... Easy enough, but considering he didn't play at all in 2022 because of a shoulder injury, that is no guarantee. 2021 was a breakout season for Reyes. He made 69 appearances that year, made the National League All-Star team. The Dodgers probably aren't expecting that again, but something between 0 and 69 would be all right. Jimmy Nelson is back for his fourth season as a Dodger. Can you believe that? I know I can't. He didn't play in 2020 or 2022 because of injuries. He got into 32 games in 2021, and those 32 games look pretty darn good. Nelson actually got a slight raise to $1.2 million after the Dodgers declined his option for $1.1 million. Now, his bonus structure is super complicated. I won't bore you with the details, but... I'll stick a link to the AP's reporting in the show notes. The best way to summarize it is probably this. If Nelson plays a full season 
as a short situation reliever, he's eligible for $2 million in bonuses. If he plays a full season as a long man or a swing man, he is eligible for $4 million in bonuses. Okay, Peralta. Peralta's bonus structure is more straightforward. He'll get $500,000 each for spending 90, 120, or 150 days on the active roster. That basically means his contract can max out at $8 million if he plays a full season with no more than three 10-day disabled list stints. Peralta was on the Diamondbacks forever. I mean forever. He batted behind Eric Chavez in his first major league game. That's how long he's been around. In the middle of last season, he got traded to Tampa Bay. Two kind of weird things happened at that point. One, he actually got worse when he went to Tampa. His fly ball rate fell. There was a report that he was dealing with a herniated disc in his back, which could explain the drop-off. And then when he became a free agent at the end of the season, he signed in Los Angeles, where he has a slash line of, this is the other weird thing, 226, 278, 339. That's a 616 OPS. If you look at Peralta's career numbers and just isolate that Dodger Stadium split, that is a 56 TOPS plus. In other words, he is 44% below his career average every time he's hit in Dodger Stadium. And that's in more than 200 plate appearances, so it is not an insignificant sample. Why should anybody get excited about this move? Well, David Peralta is a left-handed hitter who can't hit lefties. If Dave Roberts starts David Peralta against a left-handed pitcher, his job might be in serious jeopardy. Against right-handed pitching, Peralta is a career 294, 350, 486 slasher. And if he can be that guy for, say, 400 plate appearances, that's a relative bargain. Not unrealistic for a 35-year-old left fielder. Is it just me, or was there a lull of signings for like two or three weeks? It feels like if a free agent signed between December 1st and, let's say, the second week of January, he got pretty good money. And then if he signed after that point, eh, the team probably got the better end of the deal. J.D. Martinez and Noah Syndergaard were two of the more team-friendly contracts that went down in December. I think people will remember this offseason for all the contracts lasting more than a decade, taking players past the age of 40. I'm looking at you, Darvish. The Dodgers seemed intent on doing the exact opposite of that from day one. But how much can a front office actually get done if the mandate is to not issue any multi-year contracts? I guess all along I've been trying to make this offseason make sense. When you elevate a 45 future value prospect like James Outman to be your starting center fielder, that is not the sort of leap of faith Andrew Friedman usually takes. Now, if having Outman start the season at AAA doesn't cause a massive hole in your major league depth chart, the offseason makes more sense. If David Peralta is strictly a platoon player, signing him to a relatively inexpensive one-year contract makes sense. If Trace Thompson isn't being counted on as more than a platoon outfielder or a backup, the offseason makes sense. 
Think about it this way. Would you rather have Trace Thompson, Cody Bellinger, and Chris Taylor manning three roster spots for $33 million, or Thompson, Peralta, and Taylor for $22 million? I guess you can make a case for either of those things, but you can see why the Dodgers did what they did with respect to the outfield. Now, the infield is a different matter. There's a discernible plan there, at least, whether you like it or not. I have no idea what Gavin Lux at shortstop and Miguel Vargas at second looks like over a full season. In fact, I'd be surprised if it goes so smoothly that we see Gavin Lux at shortstop and Miguel Vargas at second over a full season. You know, I think back to the first episode of this podcast. I remember asking, what is Gavin Lux? Shortstop of the future wouldn't necessarily have been my first choice back then, but here we are. Now he has a full season to go out and prove he belongs there. As for Vargas, I know he's been working out at second base a lot this offseason. I know he's been taking reps at shortstop with Miguel Rojas. Rojas talked about this at FanFest, saying that if Vargas can handle shortstop, he can handle any other position on the infield. And I guess we'll find out if that's true. But I also wonder if the Dodgers coaches and front office aren't prepared to pull a proverbial parachute string by moving Vargas back to third and Muncie back to second base if the projected arrangement doesn't work out. Remember, it was not that long ago that Max Muncie was saying he prefers playing on the right side of the infield and he was not going to miss third base. It was right after he got his extension, not coincidentally. One Dodgers coach... I'm not sure if we were on the record or off when we talked, so I'll keep his name out of it, but one coach told me that Vargas' best defensive position was third base. The whole infield arrangement, outside of Freddie Freeman, feels more like an educated guess than the sure thing. Even with all that said, I feel like the chatter around the offseason was less about the team that they were putting together on paper than whether the Dodgers needed to get under that first luxury tax threshold. I suppose we won't know the answer until teams start bidding on Shohei Otani after the World Series. Until then, we're all just guessing too. For now, yes, it is odd that a team would start the season with a salary cap payroll under $245 million. That's where it is right now, roughly, when that first threshold is at $233 million. million is like 5% of the Dodgers' overall payroll. They've been known to find 5% that they can trim somewhere before, but as of right now, it doesn't look like they're going to do it. And that's where we are thanks to Trevor Bauer, who remains a free agent, by the way. At least the 26-man roster makes more sense now than it did a week ago. All right, let's take a quick break, come back, talk about number 34. I am no baseball Grinch, but I also didn't hate the Dodgers' policy of retiring the numbers of Hall of Famers only. Because after all, you have to draw the line somewhere. Otherwise, you end up like the New York Yankees. They don't draw a line anywhere. I mean, Paul O'Neill had his number retired there last season. Can you even remember what number Paul O'Neill wore with the Yankees? I had to look it up. It was 21. Paul O'Neill played nine seasons as a Yankee, which is not enough to qualify for the Hall of Fame on its own merit. 
Twice he led the American League in hitting into double plays, once in batting average. No other blanket, black ink that whole time. That is how you end up with your best player wearing number 99 in 2023. And who's to say no Yankee will be wearing number 100 in a decade? Or 101, the sky's the limit. Like what do they do in spring training? Tack fractions onto the backs of their non-roster invitees? Now batting, wearing number three-eighths, Billy McKinney. Billy McKinney is in the Yankees camp this year, by the way. I did not make that up. I also would have accepted Willie Calhoun. And no, neither of them has a fractional jersey number. Any team that wants to draw the line at Hall of Fame induction has my blessing. That is fine by me. As it concerns Fernando Valenzuela specifically, well... Does anyone remember the last player to wear number 34 in a Dodger uniform? It was Fernando Valenzuela. The number had, for all intents and purposes, been retired for 30 years. I remember there was some chatter around the time Julio Urias debuted that he would get 34, but I don't think he ever wanted it. I think he wanted to be 7. So when is a retired number not actually retired? This is a paradoxical question. It's a logical fallacy. A number cannot be retired and not retired at the same time. But what makes that determination? Is it when the team stops handing out the jersey number to its own players? Or is it when they hold a number retirement ceremony? The player's jersey is permanently displayed from the facade of the stadium. There's a speech, there's clapping, there's pomp, there's circumstance. I put that question in so many words to Stan Caston at FanFest. And here, I'll, I'll just play the audio. Stan, if you were like an alien coming to Earth, you would notice that nobody's worn 34 since Fernando. It's not up there. And yet you're getting choked up and he's getting choked up. Why do you think it meant so much to you? Well, because Fernando means as much to me as he does to any fan. He really does. I was running another team way back during his heyday. And as a business person, I marveled at the phenomenon of Fernando Mania. And as a competitor, you know, I was terrified uh, in those years of having to face him. The Dodgers, are you kidding me? With all their history and all their great players, now they have found this? What the hell? Um, but that's what it was like. Uh, but as a fan, it was amazing to watch. What, another shutout? He, this can't be real. Wait, another complete game? Him, you know, that's what it was like, especially that first year. So if you're a baseball fan of any kind, appreciate how exceptional Fernando has been. And if you're a Los Angeles fan and realize how exceptional has been his connection to this fan base, it's all the more important. I asked Jaime Hureen the same question at FanFest, and he gave me actually a much better answer. Unfortunately, I didn't record it, but the gist of it was this. Once your number is officially retired, and it's displayed alongside the other retired numbers, Koufax, Drysdale, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Don Sutton, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, Roy Campanella, Tommy Lasorda. It sends a message from the organization to the player, you belong in that group. And without that blessing, there can be a disconnect if the fans believe that a player who is missing from that group belongs and the organization disagrees. 
it goes without saying, I think, that for some fans, probably a lot of fans actually, Fernando Valenzuela is their favorite Dodger of all time. Like, how can you retire anyone's number if you don't retire number 34? And I think that also speaks to the self-imposed limits of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm a voter. I always vote for 10 guys. I have no problem speaking to this topic. Fame, to me, means more than statistical accomplishments. The stats aren't everything. The non-stats aren't everything. It's both, okay? Fernando Valenzuela, at least in Los Angeles, is as famous as they come. I don't think you could have followed baseball in 1981 and not known who Fernando Valenzuela was. I don't have the official tally on this. I will get it. I would be willing to bet that number 34 is still among the top 10 best-selling Dodger jerseys, period. I see Fernando jerseys everywhere. I look for jerseys. Fernando is insanely popular. This was a popular move. This will be the last time I say his name on this episode, hopefully this entire podcast. The cynic in me wonders that if the Trevor Bauer situation goes down a little bit differently, if the Dodgers are retiring Fernando's number this year. You know what I mean? On that note, that will do it for this week. No Sean Green today. He is traveling, but I will be speaking to him next week. I'll get his thoughts on the beginning of spring training. In the meantime, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you're listening today, Friday, February 17th, you can catch me on Sportsnet LA tonight. Talking on Access Sportsnet Dodgers with John Hartung and Jerry Harrison. And as always, you can catch my work in the Southern California News Group. I will link to my column from this week in the show notes. It's about the new rules coming for 2023. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.